Welcome to the Woman's Own Book Club Guest Author of the Month. Cancer is a catch-all term for so many variations of the disease. It affects countless people, but when it touches your life, it's deeply personal and its impact, physical and emotional, is unique to you. Well, these are the words of Cherry Armstrong, nursing sister and specialist in palliative care. While years spent in the nursing, caring, supporting professions have given Cherry all the experience and knowledge she could possibly need to write Cancer, Navigating the Journey. It's been described as an invaluable guide designed to ease the journey for both patients and their loved ones with a huge but accessible amount of information on cancers, treatments, choices, management of both physical and emotional, as well as testimonies of those who've been there. Well, it may be cancer will never touch your life, but if it does, this is so a book to lay your hands on. But what about Cherry herself? What's been her journey in understanding cancer? I'm Nancy Richards, and I asked her first if she'd always wanted to be in the nursing profession. I don't know if I always wanted to be a nurse, but my mum was a nurse. I was the eldest of four, with three siblings, there were four of us, and I guess I was always the carer or the nurturer, or looking after my mum. So I think that part of my personality grew from a very young age on a farm. We came down from Kenya. And then I kind of naturally followed into my nursing journey at Grays and Addington. I did a lot of private nursing, and then I went into, funny enough, into beauty and aromatherapy and reflexology, and I studied all that and opened up an anti-stress clinic in Durban in South Africa, I then studied my palliative care at hospice for a year and that just changed my whole journey in life from having studied and worked with hospice at Sherwood um, and doing a lot of home care. I opened my own palliative care business which was linked to my anti-stress clinic and so I had more and more cancer patients coming to me at Stress Teak so I actually had to change it and the whole, it was weird because my whole business changed from anti-stress to looking after cancer patients and trying not as in nursing as in reflexology and massage and aromatherapy and whatever and that's kind of how I grew from there so I guess my personality is very much a nurturing caring looking after kind of personality Mm. you make it sound very organic and very sort of uh, you know one thing just followed on from the other but somewhere along the line it sort of feels like the universe had a hand in it because you're Mm. picking up all these incredibly useful building blocks. I mean, just the idea of a stress clinic, reflexology, you know, you brush off beauty therapy and aromatherapy, but they turn out to be terribly useful. Do you think so you were sort of amassing all this learning and education? I think definitely because, to me, you've got one life and uh, whatever sort of gets put in your journey, you can either decide to take it or not to take it. But everything that's put in your path is an opportunity. And I think as a whole, with all the stuff I've done, running businesses, medical, clinical trials, all of that has kind of got me to this place where I was then able to write a book because writing a book is not even just writing. It's a whole lot of management, time management, and everything that goes with it. I just want to talk about stress for a moment here because stress, well, it's a catalyst for so many things, good and bad. Mm-hmm. But stress is also often said that it, it's a trigger for cancer or, you, you know, I'm not sure to what extent that's true or if it's overrated as a concept. But just tell me a little bit about its stress. When you would had the, the stress clinic, what were people presenting with physically? Well, 
Back in the day when I did open that, we didn't even have spas. The concept of spas had not hit South Africa. So mine was like this anti-stress clinic slash spa. I mean, it had a jacuzzi, lots of therapists, lots of massage, reflexology. And I think, so that was quite a long time ago. I think stress has got much, much worse in life now. But then it was sort of the general stresses that people have where they just wanted to come and have some time and probably just that little bit of touch and nurturing. So people came to me, so it was kids, it was work, it was husbands, it was those sort of general things. I think now our stresses worldwide are just unbelievably stressful, from our wars to our politics to our everything we have in our country is like really really stressful the lights going out we don't you know until you leave this country and go on holiday you don't even realize how stressful it is every day we are subconsciously planning around whether the lights are on or off at home now we've got water issues Joburg and Pretoria huge water issues that's all coming that is hectic stress in a general stressful life and, I mean, the idea of a stress clinic sounds so quite luxurious, really. It sounds, you know, somebody being nice to you and giving you treatments and, and massage, etc. But actually, stress is huge in communities right across the country, as is cancer. Before we get on to the causes and the prevalence of cancer, what about yourself? Have you had any personal brushes with cancer? No. Touch wood, I'm very, very healthy. <laughs> I have a very healthy lifestyle, have a very balanced lifestyle, and, I mean, you don't know what's going to be knocking on the door around the corner, but at this stage, not. Yeah. But anyone close to you? Because you've been close to so many people who have cancer, but has it, has it impacted your life, your family at all? I think losing my second husband was quite traumatic, although I think I managed it well because I kind of looked after him. But for my son, who was 16 at the time, his son, I think it was, it's a journey we still go through because my son doesn't tend to say too much about it. So I often bring it up and speak about his dad and, you know, boys just still to this day bury stuff. So there was that. I've lost a couple of really close friends. That is sad. I'm always very together when I'm looking after someone until we lose them. I'm not very good at going to funerals afterwards, though. Well, reading your book, it sounds like you've also made a lot of very close friends because each and every one of the people whose testimonies are in the book, and there are many, it feels like it's been a very personal journey that you've shared with them. Is that just happenstance? I mean, just happen to have chosen friends, or do you find that you get very close to people when you're working with them? Yeah, you get, you get very close because it's all based on trust and how you can help, firstly, somebody who is palliative if your pain control and all of that is really important so your patient trusts you completely with how you're going to manage them um, and deal with their condition at the time and then the same again for family you're literally I'm probably looking after family more emotionally than somebody who is dying um, because the people left behind is just it's not nice. In fact, you say that very thing in the book. You say that it's harder working with a family than it is with the patient yeah. who is the one who's actually suffering. Why this book? Why did you think it was necessary? You've d there is a lot of cancer treatment. Everybody knows about it. It's out there. So why this book and what makes this book, what makes it different? I think um, there are so many cancer books out there. For me, this was probably a personal journey through all my cancer workings um, right from clinical trials where I just saw patients lost in between diagnosis and treatment and there's never been anyone to turn to there's never been just 
the middle person. And I remember all those years, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, saying to the oncologist, I will be that middle person. Let them come to me, let them talk to me. And it kind of wasn't a thing with doctors then, so it didn't happen. So all these years later, I've managed to put, I think, that gap and some of the answers and just some of the stuff that people need to know just on a basic level is in the book now. Yeah, because you don't really need to know it until you need to know it, yeah. at which point it may be a little bit too late, but not that there's a lot perhaps that you could do because it, it comes and it, and it comes. But it's... A very big mystery, I, as I was reading your book, you know, I was thinking, oh, yes, and oh, yes, because there are different types of cancer. It a- attacks different parts of the body, and people respond to it differently. There are different surgeons, there are different oncologists. There's a whole range of ologies and methodologies mm-hmm. and alternatives. Mm-hmm. So w- let's start with the beginning. Let's start with the diagnosis. Let's start with the causes. I think you indicated earlier that there was a preponderance of it. It, it, it is, in fact, growing. Is that true? And, and why, do you think? I think we are seeing a lot more cancer than we used to. Why? I don't have the answers to that. I don't even think medical people have the answers to that. It seems to be, it just seems to be post-COVID that we have a lot more going on. A lot of people do put it down to vaccines. A lot of people put it down to COVID, which has changed something in the body. I can't answer that unless I'm just getting older and I'm seeing more and more and more, but I think it is definitely on the rise. It is on the rise, but it has been with us for a very long time, since before the the days when it was even identified (coughs) as a specific disease. But so medical treatment has been on the rise, medical development and discovery and research is on the rise. Are we keeping up with it? I mean, uh, putting together your book, you must have had to do a great deal of research to find out what is going on, how things can be treated. Are we getting on top of it, do you think? Yeah, well, you kind of, you watch the journey with chemotherapies and how immunotherapies come in now as well. So immunotherapies are quite prevalent and much kinder than chemo. The research is endless and it's ongoing and it's definitely getting better. I mean, I ran clinical clinical trials in oncology only for a year, but when we used to sort of change up drugs or put a new drug in with another drug and and monitor the progress of and every disease, every cancer is different, so you treat it for what it is. Um, I definitely think we are improving in treatment. Just explain the work that you were doing with clinical trials. A clinical trials sounds like one of those things where things get discovered, but how does it work? So clinical trials, it's clinical research. So I did a lot of project management in neurology, a lot in TB, four years of TB, oncology, neurology. And what we do is we bring in patients who fit a certain protocol. It's highly ethical and very carefully monitored and run. And we try new treatments or a mix of old and new treatments depending on the disease and monitor them absolutely carefully for however long it takes to see what the outcome is at the end. So that's clinical research. And normally that takes about three years before you get an end result of whatever drug you have been watching in patients and monitoring. So let's go back to the start. So um, you maybe have or haven't had any pain, have or haven't had any symptoms, because some people, again, reading your testimony, some people didn't know, some people did know yeah. that something was going on. And you get your diagnosis. A lot depends on the nature of the chap or the woman who is telling you this. Is there a right way and a wrong way to, to share the diagnosis? Well, it's always the doctor who will share that, the initial diagnosis. 
and then send the patient on to an oncologist or a specialist or a hematologist, depending on your disease. There is, for me, there's a right way of being able to say it, and I think sometimes it really does come out wrong when medical staff are busy and they just don't think, you know, because you've got 15 minutes and the next patient's coming in. Um, that's my view. But I think generally doctors have learned to be kinder and learned a bit, lot more compassion these days than in the olden days. So the next step is then to go and see your oncologist who may or may not be able to give you a whole, A, answer your questions, and B, give you lots of options. There's a whole section on choices. What sort of questions do people, should they ask and do they ask? Because there's a lot of, as a, there's a lot of medical information out there. There's an awful lot of confusion. I know I speak for myself. And mm. very often you think, I don't even know what you're talking about. Will an oncologist help with your questioning? Yeah, I think once a diagnosis has been made and um, the appointment for the oncologist has been done and you get to the oncologist, I think oncologists are really good with, they will tell you precisely what you have. And then they will tell you how they're going to, we call it a workup, and they work up to a treatment level. So you'll have your CAT scans, your bloods, your x-rays, whatever is needed. All that is done in the workup. And then when he's sitting with all that information, he will make an informed choice about what he's going to be doing to treat. Even at that stage, the workup, I kind of, that's where I say just breathe a bit because you can't, you can't rush, rush this process. It, it is just what it is. And, you know, you're not going to, nothing radical is going to happen in two weeks of having a workup. It's just got to be done. Um, so you've got a little bit of time if you could sit back and just let it resonate and decide what you would like to ask him. Do you have different beliefs in, in treatments? Do you think there are lots of people who like natural, completely natural? Not that I advocate that totally. I think natural and medical go hand in hand. But you have got time to sit down and write down questions. Write them down because you won't remember them and ask when you have that final appointment before treatment. And you do have choices. I mean, one does hear about people who say they've decided not to have any chemo or they decide not to have any more chemo or no chemo at all. So one always has a choice. It's up to you. Nobody's going to put a gun to your head and say, you've got to have this done, which is, must be a very difficult point, uh, which, which is where your book comes in. Is, is that really what you intended for people to think it through, through your information? Yeah, and it also depends on what stage cancer you are and if the treatment is or isn't going to work or a lot of treatment if you are stage four and it's metastasized, a lot of treatment is just sort of giving you um, quantity as opposed to quality. I know a lot of people who say if I get cancer, I'm never having treatment and I find that, that also for me is bizarre because you can't make that choice unless you have cancer. I think a lot of hassle comes in is if you are the person with cancer and you choose not to have treatment for whatever reason or you choose you want quality, not quantity. I think the problem here is then with your loved ones who are going, you've got to try, you have to try, we have to keep you here. So, yeah, that gets tricky. It does get tricky. I suppose palliative care feels like the turning point palliative care literally means that's it we're just going to keep you and we're just going to keep you as comfortable as we possibly can that must be a difficult pill to swallow for people yeah how does one deal with that 
I think because palliative care, it's a process up to palliative. So whether you've had treatment, not had treatment, because even loved ones are growing with this person who is really sort of wilting in life and is, is going to move on into wherever they're going. Um, I think because you grow with it, if it's very, very sudden, sudden is like five to seven weeks. I mean, my, my exe was five weeks. Our friend in Australia was seven weeks, and it was hectic from diagnosis to, to death. But I think if you generally, a family or loved ones are growing with the person with cancer, they're growing on the journey with them. So you, you get used to them going downhill, and because you're seeing them all the time, you kind of get used to that picture. Yeah, and just keep them comfortable. And You know, it's often, I mean, increasingly, we people talk about it more openly, but back in the day, it was a big C, we didn't, you know, respect cancer. And, it, you know, it's been one of these big, scary monsters. And I suppose if you're not expecting it and it comes as a diagnosis out of the blue, one does sort of reveal a bit like you've been hit over the head with a sledgehammer. You know, and people have different relationships with their cancer. Is there a way of sort of confronting it? Should one be fighting cancer or should one be embracing cancer and working with it? Is there a right and a wrong way again? I don't think there's a right or a wrong way. And... I think the most irritating thing for anyone who's newly diagnosed is when, and it's done with such love, but when people come up to you and go, you're strong, you're positive, you can do this. And a lot of the time it is not what you want to hear because you're trying to come to terms with it. And of course you're going to be strong and of course you're going to be positive, but you don't need somebody telling you that you are and so you will be fine. You want someone to kind of just be quiet and listen to you maybe. Yeah, uh, yeah, and maybe you don't also want people telling you about their best friend who's had it and made it or yeah. didn't make it because we've all got those stories, haven't yeah. we? You mentioned about it being more difficult to work with loved ones and friends and family than it sometimes it is with a patient. What do you do with the family? What do you do with the loved ones? How do you recommend that they approach their person who has cancer? Yeah, so, I mean... Uh, as a palliative nurse, if you're, if you're doing home visits, you educate the family on what to do and what not to do, um, right down to food, drinks, especially in the last three days, because you can kind of tell that you... I, I can sort of tell a three-day window before somebody's going to pass away, and I keep them absolutely informed. I never hold anything back. This is where the person's at. This is what she's feeling. This is what she's not feeling. This is what's going to happen. She's slipping into a coma, whatever. But I think honesty for the family is very important so that it resonates with them, that they know. But before one gets to that stage, there are all sorts of things aside from the chemo and the radiation and the surgery and all those things. There are all sorts of other things that you talk about in your book. You know, the aromatherapy, the reflexology, the diet, all those things that I think people, well, I suppose I would feel better if I felt I was doing something. They make quite a difference, don't they, those additional treatments? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things when you are funny enough diagnosed with cancer, particularly like if it's a breast cancer, is touch. Where, I mean, it gets tricky because your hubby doesn't know what to do with you, really. Do I love her? Do I leave her? Do I whatever? So touch is very important. So I think the aromatherapies and that sort of thing and massage is really important to feel that feminine love and to just feel okay with your body. 
Um, women are much more accepting of losing breasts these days than they used to be. Like, to the point where they go, I'm not even having a reconstruction. I'm just fine with my breasts as they are, which is no. And it's so refreshing to see. So that acceptance and the loss of vanity and loss of ego, there's no ego, is really, really refreshing. I did a radio show recently in Durban, and those girls were amazing, and they just didn't care that they didn't have boobs anymore. So, yeah, I think touch is important, and I think being able to talk to people is important. So with your therapist, like aromatherapy or reflex, you can still talk to. You, you can talk in that quiet, beautiful atmosphere if you have... It tends to happen where people talk. And I think getting rid of guilt is the biggest, biggest thing with cancer. Um, I, I, the, when you say guilt, you mean the, the, the patient's guilt? So, so many people, most people in life, live with a guilt about something, whatever's happened, not, not a disease, but whatever. And I think ridding oneself of feeling guilty about something in life has a huge impact on your psychological approach to so much. I think it's a big thing. I think it's a big thing. And, and going back to what we were initially talking about, going back to stress is a big thing. Going back to what you were saying about your, your son burying things, they often say, you know, all this sort of suppressed emotion, yeah. whether or not it does or doesn't cause it, it feels like it. it's a big sort of factor yeah. as anxiety. anxiety that turns, becomes cancerous. Mm-hmm. Is there any truth in that, do you think? You certainly get cancer personalities. I, and I do, I have seen it, but it's not like completely out there. But there are certainly people who can't get rid of that guilt, can't get rid of emotions, can't get rid of stress, don't know how to deal with anything. Something resonates internally that is not so good, and often it is cancer-producing. Mm. But I don't say that's the norm. I think the norm is just medical reasons. It's just something to be aware of, that yeah. if you are a stressed kind of a person, you do need some sort of release. But I have an outlet. Yeah. So with all the stories that, are, that in themselves are quite compelling to read because you want to know where this is going to end, is there a sort of... You talk about there being a cancer, cancer type of personality. Is there a sort of, uh, amongst all the people that you've worked with, has there been a common thread in the way they've dealt with their situation? No, I think every every single situation is unique, but I think the common thread with anybody diagnosed with cancer is that will to carry on and hope. So there are not a lot of people who say, I won't be treated or I won't do this or that. Hope is such a huge thing when you are given a life-threatening condition like cancer. So, yeah, hope hope is big. Hope is big. Two words that you identify as being very big is courage and attitude. Just explain those two. Yeah, so attitude all mixes up with, uh, you know, getting rid of anxiety and guilt and whatever, and just living your life day to day just with abundance and with gratitude, literally, but like consciously, not just saying two words and going, please help me. I think it's conscious, conscious living every day where you can... You've got to be, we have to be positive in this world because of everything else that's going on. So when you now, you've got a disease on top of you, it's not even about being positive, but it's about having an attitude that today is okay. Today, we're going to get through it. And if today we have a negative, there's always a positive after negative. So let that negative go and move on to the positive when it comes. It's just energy. And I suppose attitude is how you deal with it when you know that it's you know that you've got it and you know that it's going to get worse and you know that this chances are it's going to be 
going to be curtains for you. It's sort of accepting it and not blaming other people. That very often, I suppose, one feels angry, one is looking for somebody else to blame, to hit out, why me, Lord, you know, why does this happen? Is that something that takes a, quite a bit of work to get the mind right? No, I don't... Generally, I don't think um, people sit and go, why... Why me? What gave me this? It was because of this and this and this. I think people can pinpoint, anyone can pinpoint a stress sort of point in one's life, one or two or three stress points, which could have given you, triggered a cancer. But I don't think generally people sit and try and work out why me? This is me. I mean, attitudes have changed these days. You know, 20 years ago, maybe. But everything's so open. People talk so much now. There's so much interaction. There's, there's, we have. We've just got open lines of communication. You know, I don't think people beat themselves up about why they got it. Well, there are open lines of communication, but there's also a, a huge amount of misinformation. There's amount of mythology. Mm. There's amount of stigma. There's amount of... Um, embarrassment and just simply not knowing. I'm thinking of sort of in poorer communities where people really do not, do not know. Big stigma attached to it. Is, it. is it your hope that each and every person who reads this book perhaps can synthesize it in their own mind and, and pass on some of the information? Yeah, so so the stigmas, I mean, I've worked in communities for many for decades and my NPO takes me into communities every day. So HIV was a really big thing. And then I think it was during my hospice days, actually, where we lost so much of the middle income group or the middle age group within our nations, our Africans. And so all these kids were left. So there was just this huge stigma. No one spoke about it, but these kids were left with our parents and they were left with grandparents. And it was the biggest gap we've ever seen in community living these days thank goodness because your cancers a lot of the cancers in communities are hiv driven so especially at the end if you get coppozy sarcoma and that sort of thing that's cancer and it is caused by explain that you say it's it's driven by cancer it becomes hiv causes it yeah if you're not treated for hiv with your arvs and it becomes full-blown aids then aids produces what we call a Kaposi sarcoma, which is all these growths, I won't go into it, but that is a cancer caused from AIDS. That is a huge stigma. I mean, I still see some guys on the side of the roads with it begging. But because the stigma for HIV has lessened so radically over the last 20 years, TB is so much more prevalent. So our terminal cases are not cancer, they're TB. TB definitely kills. HIV doesn't anymore. So the whole things changed. Cancer, I think a whole nation understands. I don't think there's a stigma to cancer. I actually don't. You know, if they've gone to clinics and they've been diagnosed, communities are very caring for their sick. So I don't know if I see a stigma there. You know, just, Cherry, one of the things that one knows about the world at the moment is that there's a lot of war, there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of strong men popping out of the woodwork. There's a lot of very... uh, There's a great deal of unhappiness, and one of the things they say you should do uh, to relieve your stress is not to watch the news, because that just brings everybody a lot of stress. Is it your feeling, maybe, that stress and the sort of emerging anger of what's going on in the world is perhaps contributing more to people getting cancer and or other disease? Absolutely, and I think it. I mean, I know we've had war before COVID, but I think COVID and the way the world was locked down created 
an awful lot of mental health issues, firstly, and a lot of anger. And post-COVID, there's a lot of anger with people who lost people and were not even be, they weren't able to hold their hand or see them through a window. It was absolutely shocking, 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 because no human should be put through that. I even went through a phase where I said, at least let them have their animals with them if they're dying. And just nothing was an option. So I think we've got so much leftover anger from COVID. And how it was portrayed and how it was dealt with. And I think it was just horrendous, although we did have to try and stop people dying. Now we have all these wars and these dictators and these men who just, I don't know what they want to do, but there's a lot of them in the world. And I think that anger, so it's anger about it, and then it's those poor people caught up in it. So you've got this whole array of emotions in humans, and of course that's going to make you sick, whatever you get. So I suppose the answer is to replace anger with gentleness and care and peace. Yeah, and time out. Whether you walk on the beach, whether you walk through a tunnel, whether you're on the sea, up a mountain, go and have peace on your own. I think it's so important to give yourselves that space every day. One thing that I think we know is that cancer can be um, hereditary. I hope it's, perhaps you're more likely to have, have it if it's been in your family or not necessarily. Um, I think there's certain hereditary cancers, uh, breast, estrogen receptive cancers, colon cancer. I think those two big time. But then, yeah, it can be anything, kidney, bladder, ovarian. Ovarian's a silent one. There are definitely genetic factors with cancer, Absolutely. And I suppose one way to avoid it, if such a thing is indeed possible, is to lead a, a healthy, positive life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've got a big thing about if you are diagnosed with a disease, don't shock your body and change everything. You know, where people just say, change your diet, go for fruit and veg, go, don't ever do that. Don't change. Even if you smoke, don't change that right now. You know, nothing's good. To me, a shock body is worse than a normally fun- normal functioning body. But healthy, good attitude, exercise, lots of fresh air. I'm so big on fresh air. And just try and live your best life. Well, certainly, Cherry, you're living your best life because you dropped in there about your NPO and you've done all sorts of things <laughs> to raise funds for all sorts of people. Um, there's been climbing, there's been hiking, paddling, and I think the big one is the baking. Do you want to t- tell us a little bit about the other things that you do? Yeah, so the NPO now, I mean, we've raised, when I started it, it was called, I called it Celebrate Life because I was working at hospice. And to me, every day you've got to celebrate life. And that name's just stuck with my NPO now for 20 years. But from there, we went into funding Rhino, the Rhino Poaching, and we did a lot of initiatives. And we, I always do women initiatives, women empowered. So I don't empower, I don't just empower women in communities. I empower women around me as well. And I always say to them, I'm taking an ordinary woman and making them an extraordinary woman. So we are really big now with women empowerment in rural communities where we place these wood-fired ovens and micro-bakeries. We train them up to become bakers, and they start running their own businesses, earning their own income, feeding their communities, creches, soup kitchens, whatever, and it's been a highly successful project. Yeah. 
Just lastly, because you really do look in the pink of health yourself, describe a healthy diet, what you see as a healthy diet. Because for one person, it's, it's one thing, and for somebody else, I mean, I'm a little shocked to hear you say, don't give up smoking necessarily, but I'm sure you mean sort of get rid of it gradually yes, or whatever. Yes. But a healthy diet, because you've got lots of recipes in the book as well. What, what, what does a, a daily healthy diet look like? Yeah, so those recipes are pretty much sort of when you're on chemo or treatment and you just don't want it. You really don't want to eat, and you've got a metallic taste in your mouth and all that. So those recipes were thrown in just as as sort of rich goodness for your body. I think your diet depends on what you like, and vegetables, fruit, you know, all the norm. Balanced diet, a balanced diet. Balanced diet, balanced exercise, balanced life. Well, it's a very balanced book, and it has all sorts of information in it, as does, uh, in fact, your website, which is www.navigatingcancer.co.za. So, Jerry, just very lastly, I believe that your daughter has also written a book. Do you plan any more books between you as a family? I don't think so, but you never know, right? I mean, my daughter was sitting with me last night over a glass of wine saying, Mum, you must write a book about, and it was something to do with women. It was very funny. I said, are you crazy? But it is a thought. <laughs> Lovely. Well, thank you very much. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.